All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin Today. I'm joined by repeat guest Mike Green, and I think first-time guest Ben Hunt. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. First time. Good to be here. All right. Great to be here, guys. Guys, I want to get into this um, with actually kind of framing why we're having this discussion now. This was a direct response, Ben, to a wonderful piece that you wrote, Hollow Men, Hollow Markets, Hollow World. Uh, And I think there are many areas that Mike kind of agrees with you, um, what you posted, but maybe a little bit of disagreement that we can tease out later into the episode as well. Um, Why don't we just start with this idea of what inspired you to write Hollow Men, Hollow Markets, Hollow World? Kind of what's the the TLDR on on what you wrote? (laughs) And maybe if we can explain why the Apocalypse Now reference, because I'm also a big (laughs) Apocalypse Now nerd. Uh, is so poignant there. Fantastic. Well, it was actually a note by the same name that I wrote pretty much when I first started writing Epsilon Theory. So this is going Mm. back uh, eight years now when I wrote another note titled exactly the same. And it's reflecting, I I think, an experience that's shared by a lot of us that the markets are hollow and in, in we can describe that in various different ways, right? There's a lot of, I'll, I'll call it, volume on the surface. But, you know, once you penetrate that surface, there are no real bids. It's uh, this, I'll mix metaphors here. It's a Potemkin village of sorts when you look at the, the market activity that takes place in markets. But it was a, a feeling that went beyond that, a feeling of hollowness around not just, you know, surface market indicators, but everything to do with markets and economics, everything to do with politics. There's a hollowness to life today that I first started writing about eight years ago. And then I wanted to to, to update that note because I think there are different dimensions of the hollowness we're experiencing. And I was struck by rereading that note that, you know, I wrote that note before Trump, before COVID, right? Before these you know, world-shaking events that we've we've all endured uh, over the over the last seven to eight years, and that feeling of hollowness is so much more pronounced for me today. And I wanted to try to get at well, what was driving the hollowness feeling that I was experiencing then? Because it's not just a product of you know the last. Four, eight years, right? It's it, it it goes back a long way, I think, for all of us experiencing these markets. And so that was when I was, and it, this is something I've been tracking for a while, this disjuncture uh, between what monetary policy, I, I think, was intended to do. And I, as I put in the, the note, I think that central banks are an absolutely necessary part of our modern mass society. Uh they have a very specific role, I think, which is to provide that emergency liquidity when no one else will. Uh, and mm. and yet, it's gone so much beyond that today. And so I wanted to try to track, if I could, when that started and, you know, how it started and how it's going, <laughs> right? to, to use the, the, the meme idea. And so the, the, the tracking that I did was looking at uh, – Statistics from the Fed, right? This is the the Federal Reserve uh, Economic Database, FRED, the St. Louis Fed manages. So it's a great data set because it really goes back for, for, for a really long time. And what I wanted to compare was looking at this on, on nominal terms, i.e. this isn't adjusted for inflation or anything. This is just money. This is just dollars. And I wanted to compare the growth of GDP – 
that's the blue line you're showing here, with the growth mm -hmm. of our wealth, which is a household uh, plus nonprofit net worth. And these aren't, I'm not comparing levels, I'm comparing growth. And don't at me about log charts, because when you're comparing two growth rates, you really actually don't need log charts to see what is very visible <laughs> in this simple comparison, which is that the slope of these lines diverged in the mid-90s with Alan Greenspan, and that the slope of the orange line, the, the wealth line, the wealth growth line, has gotten steeper over time. And so the divergence in these growth rates has accelerated over time with each successive uh, Federal Reserve chairman. And this makes sense when you read what these people were actually saying and doing. And so, so Alan Greenspan in his memoir, uh, he's, he shows some regret for this, but he he says, there, you know, there's nothing tinfoil had about this. He says, look, we had the great moderation, a period of time uh, after inflation subsided with Volcker, where you know, we had strong productivity growth, no inflationary urge in the real economy. So it was possible, he thought, to be richer than our economy grew by relaxing regulatory standards, particularly around derivatives, other security administrations, how they're regulating the banks, as, as well as to use monetary policy in a more activist way. That is to intentionally keep interest rates lower than they would otherwise be in an effort to, in a sense, juice stock market. In particular, they wanted to juice the housing market. And this is what we've had. I would describe Greenspan as sinning a little, and his successors, uh, particularly Bernanke and Yellen, as sinning a lot. Uh, certainly, we had a lot more sinning, uh, both in monetary policy and in fiscal policy, uh, post-COVID, or in the middle of COVID, uh, with Jay Powell and crew. But it's interesting. I, I really do think that Powell and Greenspan are similar in the sense that they knew better. <laughs> yeah. That mm. they they really do know that this is not a long-term tenable uh, policy set because what happens is that inflation does get into the real economy. And that's certainly what we've got now. And once that happens, then the idea that you can be richer than your economy grows that you can preferentially, through policy choices, juice the stock market and the housing market without creating inflationary urges in the real economy. You can't do that anymore. And I think that's where we are today. I love the way that you you framed this. Uh, and I want to get into what life kind of looks like, right, in the gap uh, in between that the orange line, right, which is U.S. wealth, and that blue line, which is U.S. GDP, and maybe once we get into that that middle area, uh, we can start to explain why some of these weird feelings that I think all of us have been having that hollow feeling that you alluded to has been the case at least for the last ten years. Uh, but before we do, Mike, I'd love to get your kind of taking. You know, and when we look at this chart uh, and just kind of what Ben first kicked us off with, what kind of jumps out at you? I agree with much of what Ben is saying in terms of the dynamics around it. But the concern that I have and what I, what I highlighted in 
the original you know debate that Ben and I engaged in on Twitter that caught your attention and led to this was my pushback against the hyperbole, right? And that's my biggest fear is is that when the 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 rational, thoughtful voices like Ben or theoretically myself or others become caught up in showing people things that they know are true that aren't exactly true, that we're making conditions worse instead of making things better. And, you know, so like if, if, if I were to just show the exact same chart, you know, this, this is the same chart, not obviously scaled so that they're on exactly the same, but presented in logarithmic terms. And you can actually see that, yes, if you look closely, the slope does diverge. It actually diverges really post 2008 more than anything else. Yeah. But we do see this aspect of, you know, so Ben's point on the acceleration is correct and everything else, but it's not as irredeemable as that chart might lead you to believe, right? And so part of what you have here is two series, one of which is highly volatile in the form of wealth that is largely tied to the volatility of the stock market, and another series that is relatively stable, right? And ironically, part of the reason it's relatively stable is because of the interventions that are being made by central banks and authorities who are working to actually limit the volatility of that income component, right? That's what they mean when they say that the price level and, and employment are the objectives of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, you know, Mike, I got, I got to interrupt here, right? Because so, it, it's it's not stable, right? And the, and the two charts, I, I think, I, I believe this very strongly, that representing it this way, yep. it and this is the nature of a log chart, right? You're diminishing the variance here, yep. right? So you're 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 squelching the differences here. It's and, and this gets into a much longer conversation that's probably not terribly interesting. But where I would agree with you is that if you look at my chart, the real issue is not necessarily the distance, the accrued distance between the lines. And, and I agree with you, that's kind of what leaps out at people, and that's not as important. What is important, though, is the slope of the lines, right? And that the way that the slope of the line for wealth has accelerated during each of the, I'll call it, non, non-recessionary periods, each time coming out of a recession, we accelerate the net, gro- the, uh, the net wealth uh, slope, while the the, the the GDP growth line remains phenomenally steady, and I, I I think this this it can it can work both ways, right? So the way I've described it, the way I've depicted it, I would agree with you that f- it focuses on the distance between the lines, and that's really not so important. But what I think that a log uh, representation. I think squelches is the variance and makes it harder to see the changes in the slope of, of, of these lines. Anyway, it's a, I would, I would, so I would, what I would say, Mike, is that, is that you are right that people immediately look at the distance between the lines I've created and said, oh my God, that distance has to collapse, which means we've got to basically cut our net wealth, our net worth in half, right? To, 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 to get to that point. And that's not true. What is true, and this was the conclusion of the note, that the policies we've had since the mid-1990s, the policies that Greenspan said, hey, I'm starting this, and later regretted in his memoirs, the policies that Bernanke and Yellen have 
accelerated because I believe they were true believers that the Fed can do anything. It has control, this hubris, uh, that that they are the masters of, of the real economy. And what I think Jay Powell has been stuck with, but these policies of always increasing that slope of that line, of the net wealth line, you can't do that when inflation is embedded in the real economy. And so it's the slopes of these lines that have to come that have to start converging, not the distance. And that's a policy that I think is, you know, very difficult to achieve. Yeah, I think the ratio here that you're showing here does a little bit better job of it. I would I would say even so it kind of understates a little bit of what's of what I mean by the slopes of the lines, but I think this is a, a more um, accurate representation of what we're trying to say. Yep. Right. No, no, I, and, and and that's part of the reason why I highlight it, right? And would emphasize that I broadly agree with your underlying mm-hmm. point. I think the presentation and the manner in which we address it, and the facts that we kind of bring to the narrative around why it's occurring are really, really important. And so what, what this slide is showing, right, just to, to orient the viewers, is the exact same thing just presented as a ratio, right? And here you can actually see that the slope, the slope is the rate of gain of household net worth relative to GDP, right? And that rate of gain has actually remained relatively constant since the 1980s. The rate of, hold on one second, I just wanna be okay. clear to what I'm saying here. The rate of gain relative to Right. So it means it's getting more extended. It means that more and more wealth is supported by less and less national income. Right. Although GDP is not quite national income. We absolutely see the response of net worth rising every time we engage in policies that are effectively debt forgiveness. Hmm. Right. When the government injects equity into the economy, net worth is going to rise for the private sector. The government takes on debt. Net worth rises for the private sector. But the reason why I highlight this is, is that it diverged a long time ago, right? Like this started changing well before the policies of Greenspan or Bernanke, et cetera. I'm not suggesting that they haven't exacerbated it, but I do think that there's actually something that's really important here. It's one of the reasons why you hear me highlight stuff like passive investing, et cetera, which I actually think have at least as large, if not a larger role Right. So demographics, a population that is aging is generally going to be a population that becomes wealthier relative to their income. The dynamics of passive investing that inflates valuations that you guys have heard me talk about, that raises net worth. Right. Now, these are all huge problems. I'm not suggesting that these are not that these are not issues, but to lay it solely at the feet of the policy responses feels wrong to me. I think you guys are both in broad agreement right here that in general, right, wealth has outstripped real productive growth. And maybe there's a little bit of of disagreement as to why that is and the degree to which wealth has outstripped growth. But um, actually, Ben, listening to your just description there, it it is funny. If you look at the growth of GDP uh, in the United States, it's a remarkably constant line, right? Um, And we all know that we live in a complicated world and probably that line isn't really Super, I think it was Harry Markowitz, right, who said any line that goes up, right, at like a 40, 45 degree angle or something is not a real line. And I think where we have said uh, recently central banks need to operate is they need to be the maintainers of that line, right? So as we see different fluctuations in demographics, right, like real challenges that the United States face, right, a collapsing uh, 
like workforce um, and you know a diminishing geopolitical presence on the global stage, central banks have really been responsible for maintaining that growth. Do you, do you guys see that as an accurate statement? And is that a problem, right? That we're putting some kind of centralized monetary authority as the ultimate last stand, the safety, right? So to speak, in between um, diminishing growth, prosperity for the United States. And um, do, you, do you see what I mean? The analogy there? Well, let me go first and then maybe Mike can respond. I, I do think that, yeah. frankly, that is what central banks are there to be. They are the, mm-hmm. I'll call it the lender or the liquidity provider of last resort. That's, that's why they exist. And mm. what happened in March of 2009, I think, is a perfect example of that with the expansion of QE to what we know about it today. I think that's exactly what central banks should do, that when everybody is so scared of every other counterparty, and so you know what you do in that situation is you put your hands, you know, you sit on your hands, you put your money in a mattress, and you don't do any sort of economic activity. And that's what happened in 2009. The, the heart of the global economy, the, and the heart of that is our banking system, it stopped. The heart stopped. And that is what central banks are there to do. They are there to provide that shot. You know, It's like in Pulp Fiction, that syringe of adrenaline into Uma Thurman's heart. That's what central banks are there to do. And... They're the only ones who can do it. The problem, though, as I see it, is that what always happens is that emergency government action becomes permanent government policy. That it wasn't QE1 that I've got a problem with. I think QE1 saved the world. What I have a problem with is QE2, QE3, QE infinity, and the permanence of using balance sheet operations, not for oh my God, the heart of the economy and the world has stopped, we have to restart it, but to use it as this constant IV drip of adrenaline to control, and this is the hubris part, to, to, to and this is what I know Bernanke and Yellen really thought, we can eliminate the business cycle. And that, that, to me, is the hubris, and that's where, again, it's the acceleration of the, uh, the net worth line, the, 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 the belief that inflation can't happen, and if it can, we can squelch it out like that. And so if inflation in the real economy isn't going to happen, why not control the price of financial assets with our balance sheet operations, with our control of interest rates on the short term, and our communication policy? Why not do all of that and become the controllers of the global economy? Answer, because you do enough of it and inflation comes back in the real economy and then all these policies go to hell. I completely agree with the idea of the hubris of trying to control a system as complex as the U.S. economy. right? And I also would go even a step further and say to use tools that are roughly the equivalent of – you guys have heard me use the language, right? A battle axe to perform, you know, uh, brain surgery, right? Like you can do it. It can be done if, it, if, if you absolutely are in the field and you have to relieve pressure on the swelling from, from a brain, you can, re- you can remove that pressure with a battle axe, right? Um, it's nobody's going to be better off in the greater scheme of things um, for doing it. And so you should do it as sparingly and as rarely as you possibly can. 
the reason, the theory behind stepping in, and this is where Ben and I completely agree, and I think it's part of the reason why I think both of us have frustration with some of the more anarcho-capitalist yes. elements of our society, yes. right? Who will say something along the lines of the Fed should never intervene, right? right? This is the, the system should be set in place, right? Like that is absolutely absurd. As a parent, you don't watch your older child kill your younger <laughs> right. child. You do intervene. <laughs> There is a point at which you actually allow the, the younger one to learn a lesson, right? And not to poke the older one repeatedly. But there is a point at which you do intervene for everybody's benefit. The, 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 the point that I would make is, is that that is what a central bank is there for, is, for, is to be there for, right? It is to step in as that lender of last resort to look at the collateral in a somewhat thoughtful fashion. And say, I think this is reasonable enough collateral, and I'm going to charge you a punitive rate of interest against it to turn it into a unquestioned liquid piece of paper that you can use for anything you want. Right? That's the role of the central bank in a financial crisis. What we have turned into, and this is where I think it's gone completely off the rails on the policy response side, is we've turned away from being the lender of last resort. Sorry, I've got terrible feedback on uh, over my, my uh, uh, back here. It looks like the aliens are coming for me. Um, the um, the 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 you know what, what we've turned into is the buyer of last resort, right? Where the central bank actually steps in and buys these assets and permanently takes them on to their. I was the buyer of first resort, Mike. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> Right. And, and that, that's also terrifying, right? Because when you get to the point that the Fed is basically being relied on as a form of liquidity into the markets where it not only is providing interest on excess reserves, but it's also on a, on a predictable schedule stepping into the market and saying, OK, we're going to take these assets off your hands so you don't have to worry about it. Right. And then every once in a while they come in and they're like, OK, now you guys need to figure out how to absorb those same assets. Right. And it's, it, it's an absurd system. Right. It has to stop that part. I completely and totally agree with. But the point that I keep coming back to is if we put everything at the at the foot of the Fed, if we put everything at the foot of that intervention, we're failing to ask ourselves why we're being forced to intervene in the first place. And the reason that we're being forced to intervene in the first place has much more to do with the societal structures that we've chosen from a policy standpoint, where the retirement of all Americans, the retirement and safety and security of all the voters that are out there are dependent on these asset prices. Yeah, look, Mike, I'm I'm not, and I, I get I get annoyed at I'll call it some of the fellow travelers that I get right when I do an okay. analysis like this. You know, abolish the Fed, and uh, uh, oh my God, they're printing money, and you know, the, the, it 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 drives me kind of crazy, and and yep. it's it is part of the complex world we're in, right? That you can see that this was, there's a real problem here and that the the hubris and the, just the size of the central bank balance sheets, the, their use of the battle axe, as you're describing, it creates, uh, I, I, I wrote another note called the three-body problem, right? Which is this famous mm -hmm. problem, Poincaré tried to solve it and said, no, you can't solve that. When you've got bodies of enormous gravity in a in a system, that the the outcome isn't there is no algorithm, right, to describe what's going to happen. And I, I think what we created, we 
central banks created on their balance sheets is this body of enormous gravity that largely wasn't there before. I also think, Mike, that, that what gets short shrift today in this focus, this unending focus on the size of the balance sheet, as important as that is, is the role of communication policy, what the Fed would call forward guidance, and how that has been adopted throughout every aspect of our economy, uh, every aspect of our politics as well, to use our words for their effect on people, as opposed to words as an accurate description of what you actually think. And, you know, what we might call lying under other circumstances. And mm -hmm. so it's the, everyone is now in on this act. Every CEO, every politician, every central banker intentionally uses their words for effect, not as a description of what they actually think and believe. Sorry, third point is that what also gets short shrift is the change in the regulatory environment that we've seen over the last 25 years. So, Mike, when you describe the system that has allowed our current situation of being up the river in apocalypse now to exist, right? it is the balance sheet, yes. It is communication policy forward guidance, the constant lying and narratives that are used by everyone. And third, there really has been a significant shift in the regulatory policy framework that doesn't hit you over the head in the same way that either of these first two items do. But the change in our regulatory framework around banks in particular, but also around shadow banks and every other sense of funding around, you know, asset managers and, and the ability and their ability to achieve insane scale, all of these things combined to create what we've seen today. Yeah. And, and, and again, unfortunately, we're, this is where we're trapped in mm -hmm. agreement I think that's correct. And I also think that Ben's description of, you know, frustration with fellow travelers that want very simple answers, yep. right? Like people yeah. want super simple answers. It's the Fed. Fix the money, right? I, I got to tell you, Mike, like part of what we're actually talking about here is the nonsense that we spend trying to fix the money, mm. right? Like we're, we're constantly massaging the system. We're constantly playing with it, right? In an attempt to fix the money the crypto community has basically gone in the opposite direction and said, you know, well, let's just toss the whole thing out and start all over again. That's not a realistic solution. Hmm. And that's that, that again, that's like part of everything Ben is saying, right? I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about old white guys who are set in their ways <laughs> right, is that they tend to call things by their name, hmm. right? So Ben is saying, you know, no, it's just lying. Right. And people are like, well, you can't say that. That's not polite. You know, he's like, no, it's 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 lying. Mm. Right. Um, it is. We're lying to people about stuff. Right. And we're, we've gotten to the point where we have constructed a narrative where we increasingly tell ourselves it's OK to lie if it's in the greater Absolutely service. Right. And, and, you know, Mike, what happens right, there is I'll go. call it Gresham's law, uh, but I, but it's, but it's Gresham's law as applied it, to it, information. It's right. Of, it's money, it's true. Right. Yeah, so it, yeah. it's not, you know, Bad money drives out good money, Gresham's law, but it's uh, bad, I'll call it speech, narratives, what I like to call fiat news, not fake news, it's fiat news. Bad speech, bad information drives out good information. You assume that everything that is communicated to you is a lie, or it's used for effect as opposed as an accurate mm. representation of information. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. So again, I'm not going to call mm -hmm. it a lie, 
right? On Friday, we got the non-farm <laughs> yes, payrolls yes, number. Yes, yes, right? yes. Okay. Um, the non-farm payrolls number that came out on Friday, I would describe as euphemistically a lie, right? Um, what we actually saw on Friday was a number that in reality was down. So we lost jobs in July. We didn't gain jobs in July. The seasonal adjustment took it from negative 300 something to positive 575 or whatever the actual number was. And then there's an additional number that is added that historically is used to massage and improve the um, adjustments to the data set. What's birth called death the birth model. death yeah. model. Yep. Okay. So the birth death model is a, a very interesting, and this is this is the sort of super detailed stuff, and is the reason why like I spend much more time on the regulatory framework and and the details of the system as compared to anything else, right? But so very quickly, the birth death birth death system is designed to effectively um, imagine that we can capture the number of companies that are being created. And, and to be right? clear, Mike, birth death, that, we're not talking about people. We're talking about companies. <laughs> we're talking about companies. Correct. So this is the establishment yes. survey, right? So we're trying to estimate the birth of new companies who hire new people where we don't have any responses from them yet because they're too young to respond, mm. right? So the way that we actually do this, the, the mechanical nature of that adjustment is that we actually assume that the companies that die didn't die. We assume that they grew just like all the other companies that continued to live. Hmm. Right. So our estimate of birth is actually pretending that deaths did not happen. It, it really is right? crazy now, stuff, Mike. I, I mean, and I've written a lot about this, but it's 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 what I like to call in the technical sense, a cartoon. It's an abstraction of an abstraction. Right. The abstraction right. layer is that you can actually measure the employment of a nation of however many hundred million people the United States is. That's the first abstraction. The second abstraction then yep. is to apply, whether it's seasonal adjustments, whether it's the birth death model, or my favorite, transforming you know wage data into an hourly wage number, right? Which was something that was approved back in the 19 freaking 30s. Right. And, yep. and has continued to this day. And so we do this entirely additional survey of average hours worked during a week. And so any little change there has an enormous change on the, on the, on the, on the wage increases there. And yet we pretend like this is meaningful. Mm. We, we, correct. We, we look at the tick yep. by tick data yep. and basically say, okay, let's, let's derive you know, all sorts of insights from reading the entrails of the chickens, right? Um, that's that's really what we're doing, right? But, and again, it, the reason that it matters is we're currently watching a violent, violent unwind of positioning yep. where professional investors and many retail investors have correctly assessed the situation and said, this is bad. This is really, really bad, hmm. right? And then you get a data set like Friday that is completely made up where the birth death model does an incredibly particularly terrible job at identifying turning points where more businesses go out of business than businesses are born. Yeah. Right. And so it exacerbates that sort of turn it on average, it actually is correct. Right. And this is what mm -hmm. the BLS will point to. The BLS will say, well, it reduces our overall need for revisions. Of course, that makes perfect sense because in normal conditions, 90% of the time, it's going to actually improve the system. But in that 10%, when you really actually want the information, it's going to give you the exact wrong answer. 
Okay, can I try to just like sum up here what I think you guys are saying? And you guys tell me where I'm wrong in my like logical train of thought here, right? There are certain yep. core pro. I, I think as a society, we demand growth. I think that's the social contract, right? You can see it um, in what citizens of the United States demand. You can see it in what citizens of China demand. That's the implicit social contract between the CCP and their people, right? Like we'll tolerate certain, let's say, uh, freedom restrictions in exchange for getting raised up from poverty, a better quality of life. I think society demands that type of growth. I think that sometimes um, the world is a complicated place and that growth rolls over for one reason or another. My particular theory in the United States is we actually had a really successful wealth transfer from old to young in the 1940s with the GI Bill. A lot of really successful policies were implemented then, drove a big population boom, and now we're seeing the rollover of that boom. But for whatever reason, growth, the desire for growth and where rubber meets the road in reality kind of diverge. In that divergence is the central bank, I think. And I think one way to paper over the demand for growth and the illusion of growth, right, maybe to get us from point A to point B, is this very important lever that we call monetary policy, right? And an extension of that monetary policy is what you guys just what you guys just described as lying, right? You call it forward guidance if it's the central bank, um, but we say things are better than they are in the hopes that eventually they just become the thing that society expects. But I think maybe, Ben, to get at your point of why things feel so hollow right now and maybe to explain some of the problems that everyone just kind of feels is that everyone kind of, even if they don't explicitly understand the game, they implicitly understand the game. I think people generally know after a, after a period of time when they're being lied to. And I think the general, you can see this in surveys, right? Like people don't trust the news, right? People don't trust the politicians. People just don't understand what to believe anymore. So you're seeing that that feeling of hollowness is the people that are in authority, right? Like big financial institutions, uh, the government, the media. I kind of feel like everyone's trying to hold this concentric lot like vision of what where we want to be. But what we actually hear are these lies. And I think people can't really pinpoint why that is. But I do feel like people understand that they're being lied to. That's So that's my kind of summation of what we're talking about. I think we're facing real problems. I think that there's an attempt right now to paper over those problems. And it's resulting in this weird feeling of hollowness, this weird feeling of lying, like people are being lied to. And people don't really understand what the root cause is. But I think they do understand that things are not as they appear. I, I want to go back to the uh, Gresham's Law uh, example that I was giving earlier. Hmm. So so Gresham's Law, which is, he was talking about, so it was Thomas Gresham, right? So he this was uh, right after Henry VIII. So this was, this would have been uh, Elizabeth, right, who succeeded him. And, and the, the, the problem she had was that her dad had introduced new silver coins that weren't all silver. He had debased the currency. Yeah, you think I'm going to go here to say talking about the Fed, and I'm not, right? Because because the issues, all the issues you're talking about, Mike, I, I don't think they're a Fed-related thing. I mean, it's a part of I it, agree. like we started the show, but... I I don't think they are. Yeah, but 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 here's where I'm, I'm going. Right. So so Gresham's law essentially simply says bad money drives good money out of circulation, meaning that you know you've got real silver coins in your in your pocket. You're not going to spend your real silver coins for some 
good or service, right? Because the change you get back, you get back, right? They might be bad silver coins, and you don't know. So, as the as an owner of silver coins, you're not gonna you're not gonna use them. You're going to hoard them. Similarly, if you're the shopkeeper, if you're going to sell some item for for, for silver coins, you're not really excited about taking these silver coins because you don't know if they're the real ones or the bad ones. So that's the source of Gresham's law. Bad money drives good money out of circulation. It is terrible for your economy. It creates a depression. (laughs) Uh, We have the same thing today. Can I I actually just... Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, we all know that experience. I just want to be clear, right? Part of when you really talk about bad money drives out good, the final resting place of that bad money is actually back in the treasury. Yes, of the king, exactly. Right? The, 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 one, the one person that you are absolutely not going to give that full silver coin to versus the debased <laughs> silver the coin is in the payment of your taxes. Yes, absolutely. So let's, it, this, that's going to be relevant, actually, because I want to take this away from money and just talk about our words and the information that we put out into the public. Our information has been debased through the use of, again, call it forward guidance in that central bank situation. But it's what CEOs do today. It's what politicians do today. It's what every public person does today. You want to create your narrative. You want to shape your narrative. You use your words for effect, not as an, necessarily as an accurate description of what you actually think or believe. And this is exactly the same phenomenon where it's now bad speech, debased speech, drives out good speech. So now our assumption is that everything that's said to us is bad speech, is being used for affect, not as an accurate representation of what someone truly believes. COVID accentuated this enormously because we had public health officials do exactly that, right? Tell us what they thought we needed to hear to change our behavior rather than say what they knew to be the truth. And, and you put this all together, the, the, the constant use of lying for the greater good, supposedly, what I like to call nudging by everyone in our world. And now we all assume that whatever is said to us is a lie, is a nudge. And when you don't have that confidence that you've got a good silver coin that's being presented to you, you go into a depression. And so what we're seeing is less, I think, of, I mean, an economic depression is part of it, but what we have is a social depression where our currency of that social world, what we say to each other, has been indescribably debased. And that is what I think, Mike, is at the root of everything you're saying, that that hollowness feeling. 100%, which is part of the reason, again, why I react to the underlying dynamic of let's simplify it and call it the Fed, right? It's and, and Ben, you more than anyone else have raised the awareness of the narrative dynamics. Bitcoin, yep. Yep. right? Mm-hmm. The Fed, printing money, printer go burr, right? These are all ways of us saying fake news, right? They're, they're, they're just a very, very simple way of us behaving like our own reprehensible Donald Trumps 
and dismissing other people's arguments before we even begin to consider the depth and the nuance, nuance that exists within them, right? Everything like, and, and Mike, this, this comes directly to you. It's part of, I think what Ben was reacting to as well. Like you said, at the center of that lie is the central bank. I don't think that's true at all. I, I, I don't think that's true at all. But I don't, I don't put the central bank in there as the causal effect. Mm -hmm. I think they are an unfortunate middleman in between. They are an enabler is the way. Yeah, I would that's how it. I so would describe you, it too. Yeah. I think they're, I think they are actually the ones who are the most, they're, they're the glue that is trying to hold together reality and this like concentric so hallucination okay. reality that so, we've all so, so, been living in. Yeah. So now we're in complete agreement and, and I have to ask you this, right? Yeah. I mean, this is actually the core of the issue. When you have when, when when our criticism is levied at the glue that is trying to hold the system together, right? That does not seem remotely healthy to me. Mm. Oh, right. Like it's not the glue's fault. It's not that the glue is doing a bad job trying to hold it together. It's like we either have to decide: do we want to hold this together, or do we want to let it fall apart? And the central bank is saying we're trying to hold it together. And Ben, with burn it the fuck down, which you know, in full candor and transparency, like Ben has very aggressively said, I'm backing away from elements yep. of that. I think it's really important. Wait, saying that for a fact. Can right? I frame this? Can, <laughs> Sorry, I, ahead, can I frame this in a, yeah. in another way? Do you support uh, exchange rate mechanisms? Like, do you think George Soros, when he broke the Bank of England, was doing evil? <sighs> wow, that's a really strong question. Um, I do not think that he was doing evil per se, mm. but I do think that the celebration of it needs to be somewhat considered, mm. right? Because there, there were, um, and, and it's exactly what I was saying about the jobs report on Friday, right? And the violent unwind that is occurring. There were individuals who tried to allocate resources that were trying to improve conditions that were derailed by the recession and dynamics that were caused by George Soros exploiting the trade, mm. right? Should the trade have existed? Should the opportunity to exploit it have existed? Should the check on the power of the crown and the purse have been in place? I have to argue yes, mm. right? But is it evil? No. Was it good? I don't think you can say that either. Mm. I, I, yeah, hang on, Mike. I, I, not Mike Green, Mike Apolito. I I think talking about exchange rate mechanisms and the like, I, I think that's a bit of a diver, divergence from something really important that we're just starting to get at, right? So yeah. Yeah. I think it is crucial. And here's where I do think focusing on the Fed or central banks is so important because in our in our social lives, and I think there are two big places where we, well, three really, where we exercise ourselves as social animals. There's uh, markets, mm. there's politics, and there's sports. Religion used to be an important aspect of this, but I think it's it's diminished so dramatically. Within that markets sphere, the role of central banks, uh, what, what we all know that we all know about how markets work, that central mm -hmm. banks can control economic outcomes. That's our, what I like to describe as common knowledge, it's a technical term is what we all know that we all know. I don't think there's any better place, any other place that one can start to fix 
the debasement of our communications than at the central bank, right? Because of the question, well, how do you, how did, how do you get out of a, you know, like Elizabeth I did with her coinage being ruined? How do you get out of that? You have to find ways of getting confidence back because money is a con game. It's a confidence game. How do you get that back? I think there's no other institution that's more important to reform than the Fed. And at the heart of that reform is less to do with balance sheet operations and the like, although yes, and it's much more in the sense of using communication policy, lies, words for effect. Unfortunately, Mm. I do not believe that this institution of the Fed is capable of reform. I don't want it to burn it the fuck down because then that leads to global chaos. And I don't want that, right? I don't want a Habesian world of nasty, nastiness, brutishness, and shortness. And I think that's what you get. Mm. But I don't think that it's capable of reform because I think this institution is now a purely academic institution with the high priests of economics. And as a former high priest, right, as a former tenured professor, I think I know a little bit of what I'm speaking of, and this doesn't reform itself. You you can't cut this out, the underlying hubris and belief that, yes, I can control the economy, and yes, these models are, you know, my laser scalpel, not my, my battle axe. I don't know how to reform the Fed by changing that fundamental viewpoint at root and branch. And yet this is why I get, I don't know what to do from a top-down perspective. It's nowhere more important to reform than the Fed. And yet I think it's impossible to reform. That's my conundrum right, of, of how to live in this modern world. If I could maybe, like, this is where I think my viewpoint uh, diverges a little bit, maybe from, I agree with elements of what Ben, you're saying, and Mike, what you're saying, but I have a slightly different viewpoint uh, from both of you. Um, So the reason I was bringing up the exchange rate mechanism in George Soros is, you know, you could have very easily called hedge funds for what they did. There are two ways you could look at what hedge funds did in the 90s, right? You could look at them as these evil, profit, money-hungry people who just broke these systems that were working and they profited from that, or you could look at that as agents of change, looking at um, economic systems and relationships that didn't make sense and just hastening their demise, right? And by hastening their demise, you ensured they didn't get larger and then they inevitably collapsed, right? Those are the two different ways you look at it. Ben, when I was reading your um, your piece, what I was kind of struck by is you, you kind of drew this distinction, right? And you actually had it in these two charts, right? Of the wealth and GDP, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from the 1950s to about the 1990s and then whenever it diverged. And what I found myself thinking about is that, yes, in like an ideal world, you would just have a central bank that only intervened at the correct times, right? You only intervened in periods of deep recession or depression. But the problem is- No, it's not even that. I just think it's it's unrealistic. Sorry, I got to interrupt here. It's break glass in case of emergency when there is no liquidity in global markets. That's what the Fed is there to do, period, full stop. Anyway, carry on. History has clearly shown that that's not how they, that's not how it's evolved, right? And I think- Mm -hmm. Just wishing that it happened any other. The temptation to use the powers when it's not a break glass situation yep. are simply too great. And if we replayed this simulation, it would continue to play out. So the reason why I think I might have slightly different perspective from the two of you guys, 
uh, I think there is very much something to crypto where it's like, hey, this is a bunch of young people. Uh, we're trying to keep the system together here. And I think that is a bunch of young people who maybe not we're ignoring lessons that have already been learned by traditional finance. Like Mike, you listened in on a, we're recording this on the 8th. We listen, you listened in on a session that our analysts gave uh, last week. And you very correctly, I think, pointed out to me something that might've been missed, which was a, a new development in crypto was, looked like something that was very old that has, was a broken thing. But what I would also maybe say in response, and I think there are some, we're ignoring some wisdom in our space. But what I might respond to you guys is that what sometimes the guys with the silver hair miss is that the situation actually can get better, right? I have a very different perspective where I actually, I am, despite the problems that our world faces, I am actually quite optimistic that a better system can get built. Uh, so I think I think that's the, the perspective that crypto brings to it. And it says, look, there are some things that are very broken. I get that there's a burn it the F down. And I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are guilty of saying, I want to see the whole shit burn. I'm not on that page. I think that we can design a better a better system, a better world uh, with more growth at the center there. I, that, that's where I'd say my so, brown hair maybe differs a little bit from the gray hair. Although Mike, you've still got well, for, golden first, locks. I just want to point out my issue is a lack of, not a gray. But, um, the, I got both. Yeah, the, for, the forehead keeps it. <laughs> exactly. Ben is truly guilty. I'm only half guilty of that. Mm. Um, so Mike, I, I actually think that's part of, you know, I, I, I think that narrative that you just articulated about what crypto thinks it's doing, mm -hmm. right, is, is actually really important because I don't think either Ben neither Ben nor I would argue that the system cannot improve, it cannot get better. Ben saying that the Fed cannot be reformed is not the same as saying that there isn't a better world that can be built out there. And by the way, I think all of the stuff, I mean, you've dealt with me and, and, and had numerous interviews with me. And I think what you, you find this is that there's a stunning amount of naivete on my part in terms of, yes, the system can actually become better and that the world that we're in is highly likely to be a better world in a decade or in a hundred years than it is today. Mm -hmm. Our children and grandchildren will have far greater potential than we have. I certainly hope that's the case, right? But I think the focus, the relentless focus on the financial aspect of it is part of why I keep pushing back because that's not actually where the focus needs to be. The challenge with debasement of a currency, right? Removing the quantity of silver from coinage is not actually the removal of, of silver from the coinage. It's the signal that it's sending about the intentions of the spending of the government, that they want to waste money, right? Instead of going out and soliciting and saying, hey, we as a society want to make these investments that we broadly can agree on, and we're going to raise taxes to pay for it, right? We're going to make sacrifices on an individual and collective basis in order to do this, they try to cheat, right? Mm. And that lie that, hey, let's just do this for their own benefit. And in many cases, typically it's because of a war, right? Right. The single most important thing is the survival of our nation. Well, that's actually not. And, and, and again, you know, you said everybody wants growth. I actually don't think that's true. I think what people want is rising living standards that may or may not be tied directly to growth. I think people don't want catastrophic change so that when they go to the grocery store or when they wake up in the morning, they're not constantly imagining, am I going to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or am I going to get jello at the store today? 
right? Those are two very wildly, wildly, like that's not a discussion that most people have, right? But if that existed and there are regions around the world where that does exist, right? Take yourself into areas of Africa. It's a legitimate question. Will I be eaten by a lion or will I wash my laundry today, right? Like those are serious, serious questions that people deal with around the world. We take it for granted that we have the stability in our world that we don't. And that's what we're all trying to paper over and lie about and do everything else. We pretend that we don't have to make the hard choices. We do have to make the hard choices. We're currently at the end of a regime in which we exploited fossil fuels to allow us to generate far more work than we ever imagined possible 100 plus years ago. Mm. Right. Like that's just the simple reality. We've resisted making the change to the next form of work the next form of energy that allows us to raise it dramatically because there are potentially huge consequences with allowing continued growth of nuclear facilities around the planet, right? But we have to make those choices. We have to actually decide we're going to move forward. This fantasy about moving back to Jeffersonian agrarian, you know, society, like we can't support 8 billion people. I'm with you. Right. And there are people out there who will tell you, well, if it can't support 8 billion people, then the solution is seven and a half of them have to die. That's insane. I agree. Like those people are functionally insane. They're no different than a Mao or a Pol Pot or a Stalin in terms of their underlying belief that, well, the solution is for people to die. And then I get to achieve my vision. You can't do that. That is off the menu. Right. So now, given that, what are our choices? Our only choice is to increase the quantity of resources that we can exploit. And I actually had a conversation with my wife this weekend where I used that phrase. She's like, I wish there was a better word that you could use than exploit because exploit sounds terrible, right? But that's the reality, right? We treat exploit as if it's a bad thing, but the simple truth is exploit is a good thing. It means taking resources, expanding them and utilizing them. And we're, we're terribly afraid to do so. It's like we're looking at the potential to be great and we're terrified of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on at, at, at that point. So, um, you know, what I, what I admire so much about, I'll call it crypto in general, Bitcoin specifically, uh, and, but also you two guys, right, is A, a positive energy I, you know, I work with words for a living, but I don't have a better phrase than that. A positive energy that is that believes that the course of human history is up and to the right. Uh, Me too. And and the other thing I admire so much is I'll call it a a long time horizon viewpoint. Uh, and those those two things are incredibly powerful, and that they're at the at the foundation of, of what I think getting from here to there, where there is a better future for all of us, it's that that's the sine qua non. That's what it requires. What I'm very, I'll, I'll, I'll sound, you know, kind of avuncular and paternalistic here where I, where I get disappointed with you kids is the focus on, the world of money and i get it we we want to do well by doing good we want to make money and i get it there's that number go up driver for all of us 
but I think that so long as all of this positive energy and incredible entrepreneurial spirit and the like is focused on the world of money, it is the worst possible battlefield to choose to wage this effort to reform the existing oligarchy and statism. It, you could not pick a worse place to fight this fight than the world of money. That's that's what just drives me nuts, frankly. So yes, well, what is what are the other places to, to approach? Well, it's the world of energy, biology. You know, my area where I want to is the 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 era of changing our society from the bottom up. Yeah, I mentioned religion earlier, and I'm not a religious guy at all. But there is a place for a secular faith in each other in treating our set, each other as autonomous human beings, as ends in ourselves and not as a means to an end. And I think that there are ways of achieving that from the bottom up. And this is where we can get into a whole discussion about the metaverse and about how the most important thing to my mind is that this frontier, the metaverse, that we don't leave it to Mark Zuckerberg and other billionaires yeah. who are going to write the operating system for the metaverse, right? We, 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 the billionaires and the status have written the operating system of our meat world. And they've yeah. particularly written the operating system for the world of money. We have to find ways to fight this fight more successfully for the long haul as part of a strategy that can actually win over the long term for all of us, for all eight and a half billion of us. So anyway, I know that was way out there and can lead to a whole nother hour's worth of discussion, but maybe that's where we end up on this. I just want to make uh, just two comments on this, which is um, one, I know that in maybe like more popular media, and if you just looked at crypto as an ecosystem, some of the loudest voices are talking about money. But I think that's probably not representative of the beliefs of if you looked at most of the people who either work full time in or think about a lot or contribute to crypto, I bet there are at least there's a large proportion of that group that does not view this. I as being think all you're about right. Money. I think I think you're right, Mike. I think you're right. Yeah. The problem, uh, it, the most successful, the most popular note I ever wrote was called Too Clever by Half. It introduced the concept of coyotes and raccoons. And mm -hmm. I think the vast majority of people in crypto, I would describe myself this way, I would describe Mike Green this way, we are coyotes, right? We're, 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 we're smart. We're, 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 I, I love coyotes. Coyotes make the world, they advance the world. They really do. Mm -hmm. But we tend to be too clever by half, and we don't recognize that the government, the state, and the oligarchy, their job is to neuter and to co-opt the coyotes. And at the same time, we have what I like to call raccoons, who are the hucksters, the shysters. We can name a lot of names, right, in crypto for sure, who fit that role. And they take on by far so much of the attention in the room when it's really us coyotes we should be talking to anyway the last thing that i'll say maybe we all agree with i don't know if you guys have ever read this book lessons of history by will and ariel arnett 
but it's about, oh, yeah. it's about 100 pages. It's actually the summation of their entire life's work, right? There was like 50, not like an enormous amount of text, right? That was created. They, they summed it up at about 100 pages. I think everyone should read this because it's exactly what you guys are describing. And they kind of chart out all of these different elements of society, which I would broadly call the social contract, right? There's a religious element. There's an economic element. There's a political element. All of these different things we all kind of decide on, right? And they're all, it's very difficult to disentangle each one of these elements, right? I view the current point that we're at, at as a, we are disentangled, like those things are failing. The social contract that was written us, for us is failing across a whole bunch of dimensions. And Mike, the one thing where you've actually really made me rethink this, I think you have to be very careful um, about just disentangling it. And Ben, I know you've walked this back a little bit, but burn it the F down and whatever. I guess what I would say to you guys is like, I see, I, I see it happening regardless. I kind of see it happening regardless either way. And I'd rather, I, I view, at least not to make this all about, I want to try to contribute in the most positive way that I can to whatever comes after that period of transition, which I'm not smart enough to know how it's going to play out or what it's going to look like. But, and I view at least, um, I view crypto as being a positive, a positive note in that transition. Anyway, more, more so than a negative one. So, 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 just very quickly, the, you know, this this is the second time that religion was brought up as one of the pillars, and and it's been pointed out, it's been diminished, yeah. it's been removed, right? Um, I actually think that that sits at the core of much of what we're talking about I because agree. there is no, we all decide, right? We don't all decide these things. We we accept common narratives, right? And, well, and again, Ben has been brilliant at highlighting this. We used to have what we believed was a common narrative that we did certain things just because, right? And we've increasingly allowed ourselves to get to the point where we say, well, do we really have to do those things? Do I really have to get up on Sunday morning, put myself into a position where I've brushed my teeth, I've combed my hair, I've washed my face, and I go off in my Sunday best to meet with the members of my community to share a moment of peace and quiet and thoughtfulness where we compile and effectively build a common narrative and outlook for our society. No, I'd rather wake up in the morning, have my own cup of coffee, read my selection of news, choose the sermon that I want to engage in and potentially, you know, pop a few pills and maybe have a uh, Sunday morning cocktail. Right. Like it's a bleak. That's bleak where view. we are. We've, yeah. It, you know, and that's that's really a terrible place to be. We've lost the recognition that it was never about, quote unquote, God or anything else. It was always about participating in community. Yep. That's it. Right. Yeah. We've checked out. So, you know, just a couple and of points on, on, on exactly that. So, A, I grew up with Will and Ariel Durant. My dad had the entire set, all of them. Yeah, the right? whole set. So, yeah, uh, nice, yeah and you know, nice. another kind of fun fact is that uh, Bridgewater uh, famously would give out a set of Will and Ariel Durant's books uh, really? to complete a uh, when they That's completed cool. a, a, a transaction. So, uh, just fun yeah. fun facts there. Uh, I think what's possible though is to recreate this notion of community what we call in, in our world, a pack, right? And this is my, always like, find your pack. And, and what is a pack? It, it, it is people who treat you as an autonomous human being and expect the same of you, who refuse to yeah. allow you to use them as a means to an end. And you don't, they don't treat you as a means to an yes. end and they refuse to let you treat them that way. Your pack can be your family. It can be your friends. It, 
I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a corporation. It's not a political party. They, yep. you, are, you are a means to an end, and that should not be where you have your allegiance and your sense of community. But what we've built is a system where the words, the weaponized narratives have intentionally, I believe, cut the, the cloth of community so that atomized, alienated, we are then drawn to the gravitational pull of a political party or a corporation. Sorry, that's what I think is going on. The battle of our lives is to recreate that weave, to recreate those ties of community, whatever that means to you. I'm just describing what, a, what the community looks like. It's treating people as autonomous uh, human beings. I think that's the secular version of this that we can recreate today. And frankly, a podcast like this goes a good way towards achieving. Yeah. Guys, I'm I'm really sorry. We could keep going for I'm sure two more hours, but uh, unfortunately, we got to wrap it here. This was a real treat for me, guys. Thanks for coming. I think I know Michael. You've been on the show a number of times, and Ben. A lot of people probably know you from Epsilon Theory, but guys, if people want to follow either one of you, find out more about your work. What's the best way to do it? For me, the best is always uh, on Twitter at ProfPlum99. My firm, Simplify Asset Management, uh, is a innovative ETF firm that launched in September of 2020. We have a variety of products uh, that you can read about at our website, www.simplify.us. So just to, to, to be very clear on the ending there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm Epsilon Theory, wherever you want to look for it. So that's EpsilonTheory.com and at Epsilon Theory on Twitter. Excellent. All right, guys. Thanks very much. This was a great discussion. Let's See do it again. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Cheers.